For scripture reading this evening, we turn one last time in our study of the book of Ephesians to Ephesians 5. We'll begin reading with verse 22 and read to the end of the chapter. Ephesians 5, beginning with verse 22. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself." For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife, even as himself, and the wife see that she reverence her husband. We consider verses 31 and 32. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, every one of us ought to take an interest, even an interest in the preaching of the Word concerning the institution of marriage. And that ought to be of interest to us, whether we're young or old, whether we're single, or whether we're married. And whether we've been married for a long time, or recently married, or even whether Our marriage is what we might call a good marriage or a marriage with much trouble and affliction. This ought to be of interest to us because of what marriage is. That marriage is in the first place part of the very fabric of this creation that God made the institution of marriage in the beginning, a creation ordinance that applies to all human beings and is even basic to human life. No sooner did God create Adam and God said it is not good that man should be alone. 
setting forth a basic fundamental principle for all human beings, and then created the institution of marriage with the very creation of Eve as a help meet and fit, that is, for Adam. The Holy Scriptures also make clear that this creation ordinance, notice no ecclesiastical ordinance, but a creation ordinance is also basic to another ordinance of the creation, namely the institution of government. Which is why so many governments have risen only to fall. Fallen because they despised God's institution of marriage, which destroyed the fabric of their society and thus took down the government. That is basically what is going on in our own land today. This institution should be of interest to us and be of interest to us especially in the church because although marriage is a creation ordinance and not an ecclesiastical one, marriage has an honorable, indeed important, even basic place in the church itself. The marriage form, which the Bible Study Society recently noticed in our study of John, references this with regard to Jesus Christ, stating that marriage is an honorable institution in the church and pleasing to God as evidenced by Jesus' own presence, gifts, and miracles at marriage at Cana of Galilee. Not only that, as we have seen, and as we will consider again tonight, marriage is a picture of the relationship of the church itself with its Savior and Head, Jesus Christ. Besides, marriage also has an honorable place in the church because it is God's refuge and stronghold from fornication and every evil lust that consumes the ungodly world. Then there is this, that it is out of marriage and through marriage that the church continues to exist. From marriage comes the seed of God that is reared and grows up into the church of the future. These things explain the great assault upon marriage that is going on in our day even as has been going on throughout all of history by Satan himself. Probably no other institution outside of the church 
has been more maligned and attacked than is marriage. This is evident even in our own time by the universal acceptance of divorce and remarriage and the ignoring of the obvious destruction of the home and society that results. There is even the promotion of the ungodly, lust-filled, fornicating life outside of marriage as that which is good and pleasing. There is the promotion of marriage itself as basic to actually self-fulfillment. That marriage is basically about self and for the end of self. Marriage is presented as a place of bondage rather than liberation for women. These notions, these sins, even the greatest sin against marriage, homosexuality, which recently in our own land was given protected status under the sick, perverted name of establishing marriage and promoting marriage, God abhors as an attack upon Himself. Furthermore, the great apostasy that the Scriptures foretell in the church is also evident that these attitudes are found in the church itself. So we ought to consider in its own right marriage and the institution of marriage. But it is especially fitting for us to do that tonight in connection with the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper itself, as the meditation I placed in the bulletin makes absolutely clear, and which our creeds also make clear, even referencing this very text in connection with the Lord's Supper, shows that this is applicable. An appropriate applicatory is to consider the very relationship we have to Jesus Christ as a church and as was signified and sealed in the supper itself where we so participated in Christ so that He is in us and we are in Him. That as the context of these verses shows, We are bone of His bone and flesh of His flesh. Now, not simply as a head and a body, but as a married couple. Consider with me the mysterious marriage of Christ and the church. The mysterious marriage of Christ and the church. We notice in the first place that it is a one flesh union. That is one of the Many things taught here in this text, specifically verse 31, 
which reads, For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall be joined unto his wife, and they two shall be one flesh. That is an important text, an important statement about marriage. That verse is this text and these words, particularly about being joined unto his wife as one flesh, you will find four times in Scripture. The first is when marriage is instituted in Genesis chapter 2, before the fall, and then it's found three times after the fall. Once here in our text, and two other times significantly in Jesus' own instruction about divorce and remarriage. Significantly, Jesus quotes this text. This indicates that the verse 31 is setting forth God's plan and God's purpose, the means, as it were, how God accomplishes marriage and what marriage is. It's God's blueprint, as it were, for a good marriage. Many marriages suffer, are filled with miseries and sorrows of all kinds, exactly because this blueprint of God, this plan for God, this clear setting forth of His will and way for marriage was ignored. One ignores this to one's own demise in marriage. Notice that this beautiful description of marriage and even the setting forth of marriage in this whole text follows the alternative, follows the dark, sordid, ungodly wickedness of what goes on when marriage is perverted. And you will find that, as you will recall, in verses 3 through 12 of this very chapter. But fornication and all uncleanness, let it not be once named among you as becometh saints, neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor jesting, which is not convenient. Do you not know that no whoremonger nor unclean person shall inherit the kingdom of God? It's in that context that the Lord now says, this is the antithesis of that. This is the refuge from that. This is where one is protected from that. This is therefore God's own commentary on the mystery of marriage, including the mystery of the marriage of Christ and the church. In this text, God sets forth that marriage is a mysterious union of the most intimate fellowship that one can imagine, even fellowship wherein two shall be one flesh. This is, according to God, 
marriage itself. And now notice that the profound teaching of this text is not that marriage is first, your marriage and my marriage, or the institution of marriage in the beginning, but the original marriage, the marriage of all marriages, that which is the fulfillment, that of which earthly marriage is only a type, is the marriage of Christ and the church. In that relationship, the Lord loves the church and lives with the church in intimate fellowship. And the church on her part loves the Lord and lives in Him in the most intimate fellowship. How so? Recall that earlier, earlier it was said, this close, even as a head lives with its body. Or as we read in verse 30, even where there are the same flesh, the same body, and the same bones. That closely united. As I mentioned, these words are from the institution of marriage itself. And most significantly is the word of God after He created Eve and presented her to Adam in the first marriage. When Adam received his wife from God, then you will recall that Adam said something. He said, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, and therefore she shall be called woman. And immediately after that, God speaks. Now that's not so clear in Genesis itself that God is speaking the words that follows. And that's where the quotation of that by Jesus Himself is important. Because it's Jesus who says that God then speaks and says, for this cause, this is God speaking now, not Adam, for this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. That then is the basic meaning of what comes earlier. A man's wife is part of himself, and he is a part of her. So much so that for a man to hate his wife is for him to hate his own body. The text then is speaking to the intimacy of that union. Now, in this pattern of God, in this decree of God concerning marriage, God says it begins when a man shall leave his father and mother. Indeed, for this cause shall a man leave his father and mother. That's a significant part of the formula for marriage. Leaving father and mother 
does not mean that one forsakes them, abandons them, and forgets them. Does no longer honor them because the Scriptures make clear the opposite. That we are always called to be faithful to our parents and to love them and honor them and care for them in their life. Nor does Jesus mean here that one has to move afar, far away from them. In fact, one can live thousands of miles away from one's parents and still never really leave them as God sets forth here. No, leaving here means there is a radical fundamental change in that child-parent relationship. And that fundamental change is initiated by the child himself in order to marry for this cause. What this means is that whereas previously what was important and primary in the child's life was his relationship to his parents, was concerned about their ideals and their goals and their instruction and their well-being and their care of him or her, now the child places the spouse as primary. The husband, for example, is more concerned with the wife's ideas, her opinions, her life, even more so than his parents. He is no longer dependent upon them. Not dependent upon them for their approval, for their appreciation, for their assistance, and their counsel, but rather relies upon his spouse. In fact, the profound teaching of the text is this is necessary even for the marriage to thrive. The husband, therefore, when he marries, does not live in marriage this way, where he spends his time trying to make his wife like his mother and to make his marriage exactly like the marriage of his parents, but no recognizing that two different individuals from two different homes and two different sets of parents now are married, that becomes the focus of his attention. This means that the relationship in the marriage is the most important thing to the spouse. That what matters now is the nurture and care of that relationship. That that takes primacy. That that receives the attention. That the main attention of the wife or the husband is not now how they may please their parents. Is my house clean enough for my mother to come over? Or am I dealing with my wife in such a way that my father approves? But no, the focus becomes now how may I be a good husband and a good father? How do I live in this relationship so that I honor 
marriage. And I honor God in this relationship now that is most important to me. This reality is important. To ignore it will result in misery and trouble. It also has several implications. If now this is true, then when our children marry, we must refrain from hanging on. That is, intruding into their life, especially their marital life. Refrain from attempting to run their life and have them marry and live in marriage as we do. We must, in other words, make it easy for them to leave father or mother rather than drive them away. Let them see that they must leave and then let them leave. It means that we must prepare our children to leave. That in spite of our love and our care, that our love and care is actually directed for the time and to the time that they leave. We raise them and rear them and instruct them and care for them with that in mind and with that in view. And now not simply that they leave, but they leave specifically to be married. That's our goal. That for this cause, they leave father and mother. Not that they leave because they're old enough. That they leave because we've driven them out. That they leave so that they may spread their wings and now live as adults. But that they may leave for marriage. Besides that, we must prepare ourselves. We must prepare ourselves for that day when they leave. How do we do that? Well, by cultivating a relationship with them that extends beyond simply blood. Parent and child relationship. That is, we cultivate deliberately a commonality especially of faith. So that after they leave, and after the earthly bonds, the bonds of blood even, between parent and child are drastically and radically changed, we find with them an even tighter bond, a more closer bond in the faith and with regard to the faith that we taught them and reared them in their life. The closeness and the intimacy of this bond, this new relationship, whereby one even leaves father or mother, is that it's a one flesh union. That marriage is the act of God joining two individuals, two persons, so that although they remain and are two persons, they nevertheless are one flesh. That's important. In fact, that's just the opposite of the way marriage is viewed today under the instigation of the devil himself. Marriage is the place 
where there are two who somehow are brought together either on a contractual basis or mutual agreement, but they basically remain two. Not simply two persons, but two flesh, two fleshes, two, that is, lives. You see, the word flesh here refers not simply to one's body, to the sexual union, although that is the reference. If one truly wants to understand marriage and the one flesh union, then one must go to its most intimate expression, which is the sexual relationship. There two persons literally are one flesh. But this refers to something deeper and greater as even the relationship with Christ really shows. Here is where the original marriage of Christ and the church teaches us much about the picture. That this union of one flesh is in the first place a matter of the will. Notice that, will you please. For this cause shall a man leave and shall be joined. Now that word shall be joined makes clear that marriage is an act of God joining two together. But also, if you look at the original institution of marriage and God's commentary on it, the word there is cleave. Cleave and be joined. And that's in active tense. And what it's referring to is the profound idea that marriage is a matter of the will. That a man leaves his father and mother in order to deliberately cleave to his wife, to take her, to love her, to hold her in his arms, and she likewise does the same thing. Why is that important? Is that important because it overthrows or undermines the reality that marriage is God's act? No. Like is so often the case, even with our relationship to Christ and the church, which requires much activity and much activity of the will, which is why in our marriage to Christ He must change our will, for us to love Him, it points out that love is not merely an emotion. That love is a matter of obedience. That love is a matter of determination. That even in marriage, where we use terms like fall in love, the truth of the matter is that in marriage, a man and a woman say, I will love you, and I do love you. 
And the strength of marriage is exactly that, which is exactly why vows read the way they do. Marriage is not where a man is joined to a wife and then joined to her only in good times or as long as he cares to. And then when times are tough, when she becomes older and more wrinkled, he casts her aside. Or where she says, I love you and I cleave to you as long as you grant me what I want and provide for me and care for me in a way that I think is appropriate. But no. Oh no, the institution of marriage is one where one leaves and then cleaves and cleaves no matter what. Marriage is indeed that because it is God's joining. So much is this true that marriage is God's joining together, that even when an individual disobeys God and says, I will no longer love my wife, I hate my wife, or even when a man pretends to love his wife but really doesn't, when he casts her aside, when he goes to the court and says, I divorce you, you are no longer one with me. God's joining still stands. Even as when we disobey God, that does not change God's demand. It does not change God's law. What we can point out right here now, beloved, is something also very profound, which is this is the case exactly because it's the case with our marriage with Christ. Look simply first at the leaving father and mother. Is that not a reflection of what we must do? To become married to Christ, we must leave a former relationship, even a very close relationship, even one of blood. Our relationship to our first parents, Adam and Eve, in order to be married to Christ, we must leave that. That tie must be broken. And when broken, our tie to Christ becomes primary and foremost. In fact, so much so that if we are Christians and our parents are not, then we must leave our father and mother in a way even more painful spiritually. But notice that's the case for Christ too. For Christ to become married to us, He must leave His Father. He must leave His home. He must leave His home in heaven. He must assume our flesh. He must come to earth. And this is permanent. The Son must leave His Father in a way that is permanent. When He assumes our flesh, there is a change in the relationship. And one that profoundly takes precedence, as it were, in Christ Himself. His focus, His attention is entirely 
upon the church. Not now to the exclusion of the Father, for this we are talking about is unique and indeed mysterious. But don't overlook that. Don't overlook the fact that the very truth that Christ marries the church and marriage is a leaving of father and mother indicates the great love. And notice also determination. Why is that important with regard to Christ? Because we are unlovable. If you would make a determined nation not any longer to love your spouse for this or that reason. Never mind now that you rightly do not take that as an excuse to divorce and remarry, to get another husband or wife, knowing that's wrong. Keep in mind that your wife or your husband couldn't possibly sin against you as we have done to God. If there was ever a reason for a husband to cast away his wife as a fornicating, adulterous woman, it is the church. But by an act of his will, because in his eternal decree and good pleasure, God said, this is the church, and these members belong to that church. This is the church and bride of Christ, regardless of our sin and iniquity, because of His will, His determination. He says, I will even give my life for that fornicating, adulterous woman. And I will cleanse her. I will, even as we read earlier, cleanse her and wash her by the water, by the Word, that He might present it to Himself a glorious church. And we are one flesh with Him. Here, with regard to our relationship to Christ, we can learn much from marriage and vice versa. Hopefully you see what I often tell couples in marriage counseling. If you give yourself to your marriage and you live rightly before God in that marriage and make an effort of it, you will grow in your relationship to Christ. And also, if you give your attention to Christ and grow in that relationship, you will find your marriage greatly, greatly benefited. Why is that? Because it has something to do with that one flesh union and what it means. There's an amazing thing here that's presented and one that's pretty important in our day. It's being taught now that our relationship to Christ is such that we lose our person. That such is our relationship to Christ and so much is it one that we become Christ. Or that we no longer do anything. We don't love God. We don't. We can't. What that is, is really a denial of marriage 
and denial of the work of God joining two in one flesh. The mystery of marriage is that two persons are united in one flesh and they remain two persons, yet one flesh. That is the mystery of marriage. The mystery of marriage is there's two persons, but one flesh. What does that mean? It means that they operate together. They live together. The oneness is that they think together. Now there may be two minds in operation, even two hearts in operation. There may be two desires, but they're focused as one. There's one purpose, one goal, one ideal, one life, one everything. But it's a joining of the two, of the two persons. That's the amazing thing about marriage. It isn't to become one flesh because now the husband dominates or even the wife. That one gives up something, but they're brought together. They're joined while still remaining two persons. I hope you see that this is a reflection even of the Trinity itself. That there is one God There is one work of God, one act of God, one being of God, one existence of God, one life of God, and yet three persons, all enjoying and living in intimate fellowship in the being of God. And that now is reflected rightly. So that if one denies that, one immediately denies then the Trinity. This is mysterious. This one flesh union. And if you want to know how mysterious, simply look at the sacrament itself. If you want to know how intimate, look at the sacrament itself. Look at the biblical picture of marriage. The intimacy of marriage. Husband living in the soul and life, even in the flesh of his wife, and she in him. Her concerns and her desires and her goals and aspirations are His own and His, hers. They do everything together. They live their life together. That is marriage. And that's the marriage of Christ and the church. We are in Christ, but Christ is also in us. Our desires, our life, Our goals and ideas are His and His ours. And yet, we remain individual persons in that amazing marriage. And if you doubt that, simply look at the church. The church is made up of many persons, many members. We're not all joined together so that now there's only one person who thinks for everybody and does everything for everyone else. Now, it's true Christ is that, but we are all joined to Him in such a way that we remain persons. Two. It's 
It's amazing even that this is added. It's not there in the original institution. It's added to emphasize even that point. Now, we must move on. Considering now this perspective, this life, this intimate communion, from the perspective of the covenant, one can look at now the marriage of Christ and the church in covenantal terms. This is what the Scriptures point us to in one of the great mistakes that were made in the church of the Reformation is that although it understood somewhat the great marriage of Christ and the church and the mystery of it, it did not connect that to marriage. Or when it did, it saw marriage simply as a contract. This text makes clear that what's being referred to, this marriage, is a marriage of the covenant. Everyone knows, and no one can dispute the fact, that the great marriage of Christ and the church is the very covenant promise. The promise that God will be our God and we will be His people. If you ask, where is that fulfilled? Where does that come to fruition? Where is that perfected? The answer is, in the marriage of Christ and the church. Well, if that now... This marriage of Christ and the church is the covenant that tells us the nature of the covenant. The nature of the covenant, it is a relationship wherein church and Christ become one flesh. And that you see is the mystery. What's amazing here is this passage calls that a mystery. Even the great mystery. Now you will find that term mystery used in Scripture. It's used with regard to the parables, the mystery of the kingdom of heaven. And mystery now doesn't refer to something unknown, cannot be understand. It's confusing, perhaps never can be known, but no, rather something that is hidden or was hidden and God is revealing it. Now, when the Scriptures here refer to this as the great mystery, the idea isn't simply that the bond itself is mysterious. Now there's something true to that. There's something amazing about that. That God so joins together two that they become one flesh, yet two, and that God joins them in earthly marriage for life. That's a mystery. It's a mystery how it happens. It explains even why man cannot dissolve marriage. Why only death ultimately can dissolve even earthly marriage. It's related to the very mystery of it. That mystery of marriage is even recognized by the world itself, which is mystified. doesn't even understand what's going on when it assaults marriage and changes marriage into what it wants to be and then scratches its head and wonders why society is crumbling around itself. If you want to have some inkling of the mystery of marriage, talk to someone who lost their spouse. Especially a child of God who lost their spouse. There's no grief 
like it. Not even the grief of losing a parent is comparable to losing in death one's spouse. It's related to the mystery. But that's not the real immediate reference. The reference is this. That this is God's plan. Even His eternal plan. That word with the word great attached to it tells us this has been God's plan from the beginning. This is the plan of plans. This is the one thing in all the world, in all the universe that God wants to reveal that He has given His Son to a church in marriage to live forever and ever as one flesh, never separated, to share a life, to share fellowship. That was hid. That was unknown. In fact, there's a certain amount of it being hid and unknown so that it's revealed successively throughout the Scriptures so that finally we find ourselves in Ephesians. And there it is! In many ways, this is the focus of the entire book of Ephesians itself. We said the theme is the glory of the church. And previously, I showed you from Scriptures how Jesus taught that the glory of Himself is the church. As He prayed in John 17, I am glorified in the church. And vice versa. What is the glory of the church? It is Christ. There's one thing, beloved, that makes you and I glorious, that makes the church glorious, that makes Trinity a wonderful place. It's that it, she's married to Jesus Christ. And whatever He is, she is. Whatever He has becomes hers. That her entire life, not only now on this earth, but forever, is governed and ruled, is cared for, is provided by this Christ. And this is the great mystery. So much is this true, beloved, that salvation itself is subservient to it. Oh, I know, in one way we can equate salvation with covenant fulfillment. That as opposed to many who see the covenant as a means to obtain salvation. It's actually the other way around. God saves us. Even as we just read. He redeems us. He saves us. He purifies us. He forgives our sins. He purges us of our sins. And that's the end? No. So that He might present us to Himself a glorious church. That's the end and the goal. And the text teaches that this is the one thing, the one thing that God has been revealing, revealing in the Scriptures, that He revealed in the beginning with the institution of marriage, that He has revealed even in the family relationship being broken in order to marry all these things lead to that. Marriage is the great symbol of the covenant. And the covenant is the great marriage of Christ and the church. And that must govern one's explanation of what the covenant is. That must govern one's explanation of salvation. And that must govern 
our explanation of even marriage itself. Notice this is God's covenant. This is God's doing. It is God's joining. And part of the mystery is that He takes us who were His enemies, who were fornicators, who even hated Him, and He makes us to truly love Him. And that salvation is that. Salvation is that God takes haters of Him and He makes us love Him and live with Him in all fellowship, in holiness, in righteousness, in obedience to Him. But it's the life itself, the union itself, that receives the attention here in this text. This text even, don't have time to explain that, even explains why becoming a Christian as an individual takes the form that it does. It mirrors this. Where one is separated from the world, where earthly ties are broken, even family ties, and one is united by faith to Jesus Christ. And that when He comes, even that faith disappears, and we live with Him by sight. So this is why marriage itself is honorable. What's at stake, beloved, in your marriages and mine is not simply our own earthly well-being. Far too many people make it that. Even in the church, there is that temptation. That marriage is what I get out of it. That marriage is all about me. No, it's not. Marriage, as we saw, is a giving of yourself to another So much is this true, beloved, that what's at stake with regard to our own marriages is what we say and express our honor of the marriage of Christ and the church. Whatever earthly marriage is, is what marriage to Christ is all about. This is what governs our life in marriage. This is ought to be why we even look at this pattern laid out in the text for how to engage in marriage, leaving father and mother, cleaving to our wife, living as one flesh in that marriage union. If you ask yourself, well, why should I do that? The main reason ought to be because I'm married to Christ. Christ has married me. I am to be. My marriage is to be a pattern and an expression of that. How much that is true ought to be evident in this very passage. And perhaps you sensed it in the difficulty of your pastor even preaching this. When you get to this section, is it about marriage? Is it about earthly husbands and wives in the church? Yes! Or is it about Christ in the church? And that marriage, and what Christ has done, and about the wonders of living with Him, and the answer is yes. They're inseparable. And remember that that is the glory of the church. The great, mysterious marriage of us to Christ. Amen.
Our Father, which art in heaven, O Lord, our God, we thank Thee for the truth about marriage, about our own marriages, so that we may reflect on them, may reflect on how far short we come, even of the ideal, the reality, and thus repent of our iniquity in marriage and find forgiveness and strength to live anew in Jesus Christ. But especially that we may meditate upon the far greater wonder that Thou hast wrought, that has been in Thy counsel from eternity and has been revealed and is the great thing to be perfected and revealed in the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ who comes out of heaven for us his bride, that we may live as one, that we may live in a way that's one that we, we can only hope for even now. And we are thankful, Lord, for the great institution of the supper, which is a sign and seal of that great marriage. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.